Let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have just lifted up really all the songs this morning that, that point us to, to Jesus, that point us to grace, that declare the gospel, that remind us of you are God who loves us. And these last two songs that remind us of the all-sufficiency of Christ uh, for us. Father, as we come to this matter of contentment this morning, as we study the words of the Apostle Paul, oh God, give us, give us words that are soothing to our souls and that we might learn even more the secret that Paul speaks about in contentment being in Christ, in Christ's sufficiency and not self-sufficiency. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Professor Marcos, writing for the Gospel Coalition in a recent article, made the comment that he might be tempted to become a Stoic. Now, we'll define what Stoicism is in just a moment. But Marcos said that he might be tempted to become a Stoic if Christianity is a hoax. That is, if the resurrection is false. And he said... Nobody plays it safer than the Stoics. No matter what life throws at you, the Stoic knows how to handle it. And we might respond by saying, really? But that's very much what Stoicism teaches. The philosophy, the philosophy was founded by Zeno in 334 to, who lived 334 to 262 B.C., and, of course, one of the most notable Stoics in history is the philosopher emperor Marcus Aurelius, and he lived 121 to 180. But as every philosophy is multifaceted, it's hard to really distill it down into one statement, but I will seek to do so with Stoicism. And I'll use the words of Professor Stump, who wrote a great book on the philosophers, where he says the Stoics sought happiness not in pleasure like the Epicureans, which is another philosophical viewpoint, but in wisdom. And to the Stoic, wisdom was understood in terms of being able to control what lay within human power and accepting with dignified resolution what had to be. Basically, do all you can and then just accept what you can't control. That would be the basic understanding of Stoicism. You might be asking, great, but why talk about Stoics as we get to Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 13? Well, I think in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, we have comments by the Apostle Paul that might be taken to represent Stoicism. Listen to just excerpts from our passage today. Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing, and what he means there is facing life's challenges or whatever life throws at him. And then above all, I can do all things. Now I've purposely not completed that. Verse, the rest of verse 13 for a reason. But if you just took these statements of the Apostle Paul and extracted them out of their context, you might be tempted to think, my goodness, Paul's a Stoic. 
he seems to be teaching self-sufficiency here. Well, Dr. Fee, another great New Testament scholar, wrote this about the passage that we're looking at today. Fee writes, to live above, that the goal of the Stoic is to live above need and abundance in such a way as to be self-sufficient. One is independent of others and of circumstances in the sense of being free from their causing distress or affecting serenity. Serenity, and I guess we could think about serenity as being somewhat equivalent to contentment, serenity comes from being sufficient unto oneself. And that's how Dr. Fee describes the highest goal of Stoicism. Well, Paul is not teaching Stoicism in this passage, but he does seek, he does teach the secret to true contentment. And the key to true contentment is related to the source. And the source isn't self-sufficiency. In fact, the source, as Paul will show us, the source to true contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. And that's the lesson about contentment today. So as we come now to read the passage, let us now hear God's word for God's people. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Please turn there, if you will. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If there's one verse that has been plucked out of context more than any other, it is verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we will seek to set the record straight about how to rightly understand verse 13 in just a moment. But let us be reminded that the word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may it revive my soul and your soul even uh, today. Now, the outline is relatively simple. You'll find it printed somewhere in your bulletin booklet. Don't you love that booklet? It's very helpful. I think it's on page five or six, but you'll, you'll find the sermon outline. And it basically has three points, as it usually does, except on those rare occasions that I venture over into a two-point or six-point sermon. Three points today. The setting for discussing contentment. Secondly, the school for learning contentment. And then thirdly, the source for receiving contentment. So let's begin by looking at the setting for discussing contentment. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced, and Paul rejoiced over this, you have revived your concern for me. Well, we give monthly support to our missionary families, both in prayer and financial support, and it's a blessing to do so. But what if 
we had to just all of a sudden stop supporting our missionaries and we chose not to give any explanation we just simply ended the support i suspect three things would come out of that first of all we would put our missionaries into hardship a lacking our prayers b lacking our finances since we support our missionaries at a 10 percent support level of their need hardship another thing that might be created by that is our missionaries would think oh my goodness my brothers and sisters my family at covenant they no longer like me anymore they don't have concern uh, for me and then if we just all of a sudden restarted our support i suspect we would they would respond in this way we rejoice they're supporting us again so i simply tell that story just to give you a sense of what the setting is for paul speaking about contentment it is obvious that, that the Philippians, that for a season, had to take a support hiatus. I hope we never have to do that for our missionary family. By God's grace, we will not. But they, they could not support Paul. Look at verse 10. There was a time where they had no opportunity to support Paul. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul, languishing there in prison, was probably thinking, what in the world is going on here with my brothers and sisters in Philippi? Then in verse 10, he learned of their revived concern, and he rejoiced. So his joy was linked to their revived concern. And the point I want to make, his joy was not linked to their actual gift. Because Paul anticipated, more than likely, an accusation that could be leveled against him if, if people thought he rejoiced over the fact that now he had earthly goods. Or if he rejoiced over the fact that I was in desperate need and now that need has been met. But look at verse 10. He says, I did not rejoice over the fact and this is my paraphrase, I did not rejoice over the fact that your support now meets my physical need. His joy and what he was doing here is simply trying to relieve a possible misunderstanding of his joy being rooted in the gift and not the giver. His joy was rooted in the giver. His joy was rooted in the fact that his dear friends and partners in Philippi had revived, renewed their commitment to him. His joy was not over things, but over relationship with the Philippians, over friendship with him. And so that's the setting for the Apostle Paul to teach us something about the secret of contentment. And that brings us to the second point. Because Paul further qualifies that his joy was in them, the Philippians, and not their gift, by talking in terms of this school of learning contentment. And so look to verses 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. And then in, in verse 12, he talks about being brought low and abounding. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret. 
the Apostle Paul is saying that I'm really not focused on your gift because I'm content in whatever situation the Lord has me. Plenty in it one. I'm, I'm joyful over you. But in addressing this misconception of his joy, where it was placed, and in qualifying it, we learn significant things about Christian contentment. Sorry to say this. Teachers and students are beginning to start a new school year. Summer is over. School is beginning after a nice, long, and hot uh, summer break. In verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul speaks in terms of being a learner. He has been enrolled in the school of contentment. But this school of contentment, unlike our educational programs that we're all familiar with, has no summer break. It has no terms. The school of contentment is in session 24-7, 364 days of year. The school of contentment is life itself. You can't get away from it. And Paul reminds us of this in verse 11 when he says, for in whatever situation, I mean, he's, he's constantly in school learning to be content. The use of four in verse 11, again, supports his qualification that his joy is not in the gift of the Philippians. It's not in the Philippians actually meeting his need, but his joy is in them. Because he's, for he's learned to be content in plenty and in want. Well, how did he learn contentment? There are two mandatory courses in the school of contentment. Did you know that? You do now because the Apostle Paul gives us these mandatory courses. How to be brought low is one course and how to abound is the other course. How to be brought low and how to abound. You see this in verse 12. Paul knew experientially, Paul knew as a function of his life, how to abound. We'll start with how to abound. In seminary, most seminarians feared Greek and Hebrew, the original languages. I was one of the oddballs who actually enjoyed studying Greek and Hebrew. In fact, I would like to give up a lot of the things that I do just to go back and refresh myself in Greek and Hebrew. This might be part just my personality, but my scientific background, because Greek and Hebrew, there are rules. You just follow the rules and everything's great. You mess up, you mess up. You learn the rule better. And you learn your little vocabulary cards. I just really enjoyed the original languages. They were hard but they were mandatory for getting a master of divinity. Well, we have a mandatory course in the School of Contentment. It's called How to Abound. It might be hard, but man, don't we enjoy the course, How to Abound. Is there anyone here that doesn't enjoy abounding? 
I would like to talk to you. Paul started out as an elite Pharisee. Think of the position of honor. Think of the wealth potential for the Apostle Paul. He experienced abundance growing up and studying Pharisaism. We get a taste of Paul abounding before his conversion in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 of Philippians, where there the apostle describes that you know, Paul was on a, on a trajectory of success and fame and renown as the Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, all of those things that denote success and abounding. But I would say the Apostle Paul knew how to abound even as a Christian, post-Damascus Road. And I'll just give you one example. If you were to go to Acts chapter 11, you would find there the Apostle, there the the writer of, of Acts telling us a little bit about the church in Antioch and that Barnabas went to Tarsus and got Paul and brought him to Antioch. And there the Apostle Paul spent a year in Antioch before his first missionary journey began, ministering alongside of Barnabas, but abounding in fellowship, maybe in taking seminary classes there at the seminary of Antioch. Uh, a place of, ab- a time of abounding for the Apostle, Apostle Paul. Well, what does it mean to be content when abounding? You're thinking, of course you're content when you're abounding. But I would say this, as most runners will tell you, you wind up getting injured more running downhill than you do uphill. Of course, you really get injured when you fall. A time of ease can be just as fraught with problems spiritually as a time of difficulty. It means to learn not to be self-sufficient. Now, I'm a self-sufficient kind of guy. You know that. And I can really be very stoic in my approach in times of abounding because I foolishly think my self-sufficiency is actually getting me somewhere. So we learn in abounding not to be self-sufficient, thinking, I've got this. Now, come on, Jesus. Go drink a cup of coffee. I've got this. I mean, that's foolish, isn't it? But that's, that's kind of how it is in reality sometimes. We learn not to put our confidence in self-sufficiency. We learn not to hold the things of this earth so tightly when we are abounding and we learn to trust Jesus. If we seek contentment by self-sufficiency, it will destroy any hope of really truly being content because contentment is inseparably linked to the source of contentment and the source of contentment that we'll learn about in the next point is Christ himself. So Paul was schooled in the course of of abounding by abounding. The school is life. But he learned not to hold too tightly to the things of this world. He learned not to put his confidence in his self-sufficiency. He learned 
to trust Christ, the only one who can bring contentment. So my point is this, in plenty and abounding, we need Jesus all the more. Now, the, the second course is Paul knew what it was like to be brought low. Uh, confession, I remember in college having to take physical chemistry. And I dreaded physical chemistry. I can say that dread might be too uh, gentle of a phrase. I hated it with a passion. But it was a mandatory course for me to get my Bachelor of Science in chemistry. Now, can you believe that? <laughs> Not wanting to take a chemistry course, being a major in chemistry. I never understood PCHEM is what we called it. And then when I went to graduate school in chemistry, guess what? Graduate level physical chemistry. And it just about did me in. Mandatory, but I did not want to take it. But it was part of, it was a course that was essential for me to get my degree. And being brought low, that course in life is essential for us to learn contentment. And so I was brought low. That is my GPA in taking PCHEM. So do you have a course like that in your educational career? The course that was necessary, mandatory, and essential for the learning process, but you really didn't want to take it. Well, none of us. We want to abound. That's a joy. But being brought low, um, school's out. <laughs> no, school is not out. Paul knew about being brought low. And one way he knew about being brought low is because he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember the great hymn of Christ that Paul crafted in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11 where the Apostle Paul speaks about the, the ultimate being brought low. It was Jesus himself setting aside his honor and privilege and being brought low, humbling himself to become obedient even to death on a cross for us. That's the ultimate of being brought low. And re remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse, four, uh, verse 5, rather. He, he, he said, have this same mind. So being a disciple necessitates a mindset of lowliness. I am being brought low. Jesus was. And certainly his disciples will be. Well, another way that Paul was brought low is that he lived it. He, he experienced physically and emotionally as he walked the road of life what it was like to be lowly. He lacked food and drink and proper housing at times. He suffered insults and, and beatings. He faced all sorts of dangers. Just think of his little trip on the ocean. He was chased out of town on occasion he was despised by the Roman officials and the Jewish 
officials. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was in prison. He was subject to the death penalty. I mean, the, the apostle Paul was brought low. Culturally, here this guy who had it all, this Pharisee who was on a trajectory to success and fame, now is viewed by many as an outright nut as he's talking about this Jesus and this crazy gospel. He lacked influence, prestige, acclaim, standing, a respectable reputation in the world's standards. I mean, if Paul were a Stoic, he would, he would look out over a significant part of his life and, and just see a scorched earth. And he would just stand there with dignified resignation and take it. But he wasn't a Stoic. He was a disciple of Christ. He was biblical. He was a Christian. And Paul handled being brought low by learning contentment. Adversity, as we've spoken about before, is a tool in God's hand to sanctify us. If you don't remember anything today, just remember that. Adversity, trials are tools in God's hand to work his good, sanctifying work in us, to bring us to that place of being with him in heaven. Paul was, was brought low and he learned contentment. He learned that, that having little means little in light of having an all with Jesus. He learned having little in this life means little in light of having everything that has eternal significance with Jesus. He learned not to trust himself. He learned not to trust things. He learned not to trust his self-sufficiency. He learned to focus on what was truly important and Jesus reminds us of what is truly important in passages like Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. I think most of us here today are being brought low in some way. We may have financial concerns. We, and we might have financial resources. We might even have fin uh, social status. But in some way we're being brought low. Maybe it's spiritually, maybe it's relationally, maybe it's physically. Maybe we are suffering in, in some trial that we would rather not have on our plate. Do we realize that we're in school? That we're enrolled in a class of being brought low to learn contentment? If we are not content, I would say that we suffer the same problem when we're not content and abounding. Life gets real simple. The have-nots have the same problem as the haves, really. It's, it's what it boils down to. You don't have to write another book about it. You just use the same book for both. 
We may be striving in our own self-sufficiency to dig our way out of the pit of want to get to the heights of plenty. We may hold too tightly to a dream of what life could be if only I had. I've got to share a little personal thing about this. Renee and I have learned a huge lesson. Now, we have a great family. We love our kids and grandkids. But let me tell you something. Uh, I think one of the things that we have learned, and maybe you're learning this or have learned this, or perhaps you, you will learn this. I think we'll all, all experience this in some level, but for us it's with our family that, you know, when our kids were little, we had this picture of what our family was to be in the future, and it was just an idol in our lives. I mean, that would be abundance if our family turned out like that. And if I had a piece of paper, I would, well, I do actually. So this is what God did to our dream of what our family, our dream of what our family was to be like. So maybe that describes being brought low when you realize that that your dream is gone. But that's the place we learn contentment. It's not a wasted thing. It's school. It's God teaching us in want not to hold tightly to that dream. You get it? He teaches us not to hold tightly to self-sufficiency, to our dreams, to things, so we hold tightly to him. That's the dream. Lacking contentment and abounding and want is rooted in the same problem. Self-sufficiency in some shape, fashion, or form. And the school of contentment teaches us to hold loosely to the things of this world and our dreams. In both our want and our abundance. And to trust only in the source, which is Jesus, which is our next point. The source of receiving commitment is revealed in this oft-quoted-out-of-context verse, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. <laughs> if that was just by itself, that would be so great. You know, we could use that for just about anything. I can win a marathon, you know, through him who strengthens me. Well, you know good and well I'm not going to win a marathon. Or any kind of a bike race, even an amateur bike race no matter how much I depend on Jesus to strengthen me. I mean, when you really start to think about it, that statement taken out of context makes no sense at all. Except that it's damaging. Not to mention wrong. But he gives us here in this verse, rightly understood, really the secret of contentment. It's, It's learning the lessons of these two courses, how to be brought low, how to abound. And the the lesson can be distilled down to this. Contentment is about the source. In want or in plenty, we learn 
our need for Jesus and to trust Him. And there's where our contentment is, in Him. The source of contentment is the strengthening grace of Christ as we take these two courses in the school of contentment. We access that strength through trust, through faith, turning again and again and again to Jesus as we learn in this school, which is life. Habakkuk that Dan read earlier, oh my. You want to talk about contentment, is that not a picture of what Paul is talking about right here? You may know the story of Habakkuk. It's one of my favorite prophets because I just I just love Habakkuk. Then at the first part of the prophecy, Habakkuk is upset with God. And he's upset with God because God doesn't seem to be punishing Israel for all of their rebellion. Oh God, I'm just so fed up with you. You need to be punishing these wicked people. And so then in the middle section, God punishes them, but he uses a pagan nation. And Habakkuk says, oh God, I'm so upset. Why did you use such a pagan nation to punish your people? I mean, this is nuts. And one reason I love Habakkuk is because I can be just as nutty when I'm trying to contend with God about God's ways. I'm upset because you don't do this and you do that. I'm upset because you did it this way, God. But, now, Habakkuk was in the school of contentment. And he was learning. And we know he learned because we finally get to Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17. I'll read it again. It deserves to be read often. For Habakkuk says, and remember now, God is punishing, bringing devastation, bringing low the nation. And Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. You see how much this relates to what Paul is saying? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is a beautiful, beautiful hymn of faith, hymn of fleeing from self-sufficiency to trusting holy in God and being enabled by God's strength again, turning from self-sufficiency. And the result of that being strengthened by God was this amazing, I can tread the heights like a deer in abounding or in being brought low. Contentment. Well, Jeremiah Burroughs of Jeremiah Burroughs is considered to be in the upper tier of Puritan preachers. And I have on my shelf a book that's very helpful. Burroughs' book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Don't you love that title? It's very descriptive. I'm really encouraged because if Jeremiah Burroughs struggled with contentment, 
that makes me feel a little better because you know, he was such a giant he is a giant in church history especially Puritan thought but I just want to read just a few sentences a, a few thoughts from from brother Burroughs here it's really helpful just to help us understand what content what what true contentment is he, he says this I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have, su I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. He says it's a work of the spirit. Contentment is a work of the spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. Every condition that I delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in my being brought low, I delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in my abounding. You see, life has less and less to do with being brought low and abounding as it does trust and faith in God and being content in Him. Well, Paul did not write the verses that we have considered this morning from a Stoic worldview where he understood contentment being rooted in the Stoic ideal of self-sufficiency, quite the opposite. I hope you've seen that. That Paul's view of contentment is what Jeremiah Burroughs describes in just these few words that we've considered this morning. It is putting our anchor, being anchored firmly and purely and supremely in Christ's sufficiency. Christ's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. Two ladies were on a little hike up Pinnacle Mountain on the West Trail up, up to the summit. And as they were getting up to the, the upper portion of that trail, they began to struggle because the incline increases, the rocks become a little bit more uh, prevalent be putting it lightly and someone nearby uh, one of my kids were up hiking that trail and they heard one of these ladies and she was just she said increase me Jesus and the other lady said yes Lord increase us Jesus <laughs> and you know tr tr translated by the Apostle Paul it would be, I can do all things, including reach the summit of this really difficult trail by being strengthened by Jesus through him who strengthens me. Now, that's kind of lifting that text out of context, isn't it? <laughs> but yet, there is some truth in this, this saying, increase me, Jesus, I can do all things. I can do all things. I 
this is what Paul is saying. This is how I take it. I can be content in all things, in plenty and in want, through him who strengthens me. I believe what Paul is doing here is showing us the source of contentment. Not the source of our being able to do whatever we want, like climb the, the West Trail up Pinnacle Mountain. Contentment's true source is Jesus who strengthens us. That we would submit and actually delight in what God wants, not what we want. Gordon Fee, as I quoted uh, earlier, again, really helpful commentary on Philippians and many New Testament books, understands the key to contentment in this way. Paul's point is that he has learned to lie in either want or plenty through the enabling of Christ. Being in Christ is not being self-sufficient. Being in Christ, not being self-sufficient, has rendered both want and will, plenty and want, of little or no significance. What Paul is basically saying here is that my want or my plenty is of no real consequence to me. What matters is Jesus and living in him, serving him, loving him, obeying him, being strengthened by him. He will give me what I need to be content to where I don't even really consider my want or my need at any great extent. Yes, Lord, increase me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, Lord, increase our contentment. That we would be content with God doing what he wants and not what we want. That we would be content as we go through the school of contentment in being brought low and in abounding. I mean, this is the secret, really, to contentment. It is. Increase me, Jesus. Teach me what I need to know in being brought low and in abounding that I would be content in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your strength and your power. We thank you for what is a promise that you're telling us here that you will enable us to be content. And what you call us to do is to turn and trust you. And I pray that you would more and more cause us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.